Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, January 3rd, 2023. Coming up, Dr. Michael Stein talks about his dive into the public health system in our country, detailed in his recent book, Me Versus Us. But first, some of the recent news in science. Aphasia is a condition that makes language skills difficult. This includes speaking, understanding spoken words, writing, and reading. Aphasia occurs in about 40% of stroke survivors. In a recent study published in the journal Brain Communications, researchers at the University of Helsinki described a low-cost way to help stroke patients with aphasia and their caregivers, group singing. For the study, a music therapist and a choir conductor led patients and caregivers in group choral singing for one hour per week for four months. Both family members and patients also learned melodic intonation training. This method of singing everyday conversational phrases like thank you eases stroke patients back into regular speech. At home, patients practice their group singing parts using a tablet-based app. Scientists found that, in addition to standard post-stroke care, singing-based group rehabilitation not only helped patients recover language skills, it also improved their psychological well-being. Because aphasia can lead to social isolation, researchers say group singing rehabilitation offers this added benefit of a social support system. And this can help their family members, too, as they navigate the often isolating role of caregiver. For How on Earth, I'm Benita Lee. Many healthcare policymakers give a nod to eating well, then talk more about finding new drugs and making drugs more affordable. An emerging approach focuses on eating foods that lower the need for medication. For one of the most costly and common diseases in America, diabetes. One in three Americans already have diabetes or pre-diabetes, according to the Centers for Disease Control. The CDC also reports that the average cost of treating diabetes is over $10,000 per person per year. Nationwide, one out of every four healthcare dollars goes to diabetes. And are a company that has just moved to Denver, Verta Health doesn't focus on drugs. Instead, it uses self-monitoring and ongoing coaching to help clients follow a way of eating that promotes something called nutritional ketosis. On the typical wellness program from the CDC or the American Diabetes Association, the typical diabetic ends up using more medication while their blood sugars and blood pressure creep up. In contrast, Verta Health reports clients lower blood pressure and blood sugars while also reducing medication needs by half. An increasing number of insurance providers and private companies are picking up the bill for people who enroll in Verta Health. If more non-typical styles of healthcare could track outcomes in a manner similar to Verta Health, might American healthcare shift toward better health with fewer drugs? For How on Earth, I'm Shelley Schlender. Michael Stein is a primary care doctor and public health advocate who takes readers on a tour of the big questions behind American health and health care. In his book, 
me versus us, he explores the practical and philosophical differences between medicine, that is, individual health care, and public health, as well as those between individual health and the larger health care system. The book compares the two approaches on a number of issues, including life expectancy and obesity. Michael Stein, welcome to the show. I am speaking with Dr. Michael Stein this morning, author of many books, including the one we're going to talk about today called Me Versus Us, and a longtime primary care physician, uh, researcher, and practitioner of public health. So it's the latter that we're going to focus on today, and which he talks about extensively and somewhat surprisingly in this book. So Michael Stein, maybe you could Talk a little bit about the me and the us in the title of your book. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm I'm thrilled to be here. So the title of the book is really based on sort of two perspectives that we hold in the United States. And I worry that one is held more than the other, which is the me perspective, which is, of course, the powerful idea about individualism that we as Americans grow up with that turns in the health world to sort of uh, the ethos of self-help, but it plays out in all sorts of ways in our lives, right? We believe that we make our own career success and failure, that life is an individual journey, that we pursue happiness in a self-absorbed way. And similarly, therefore, we can optimize our health personally, that if we have the right amount of money and the right amount of time, we can make the right decisions about what we eat and what we drink and where we, how much we sleep and how much we exercise. And of course, if we get sick, we can see providers, clinicians. So that's the medical perspective, the me perspective. I can do it all myself. And public health asks something different of us, right? It's an us-oriented uh, perspective. So it's the me versus the us. And to be a, in the public health perspective is to think of ourselves as part of a group, that the conditions of our lives around us that we don't completely control affect our lives, our children's lives, our family members' lives, our neighborhood, our community, etc. And that um, that's an important thing to keep in mind, that um, America has to be a group project as well as an individual health project. Yeah, and you state that in a really um, powerful message in the book in which you say that public health can be thought of as what government and community should do. Like we should take care of babies. We should make people wear seatbelts. We should do these things that are kind of moral imperatives almost. And it seems like in this country, we've really moved away from that. Can you talk some about that? I find that really intriguing. Yeah, I use the word should uh, hesitantly, as you know, in the book, which is people don't like to be chided and chastised for what they should do. Uh, we resent when people say that to us. And yet public health sort of has that high moral tone. You should do this. And so I don't love the should tone, but we need to have a way in public health. And I say this as a primary care doctor. So I really am saying this from inside the 
healthcare medical me world um, taking the position of the public health uh, us world, we really need to uh, try, I, I need to persuade you not to think of yourself all the time as an individual with only your immediate interest in mind. Now, I'm not naive, and I think that's how people think, and I think that that's normal. But we also, I think, need to think about um, the larger interest of our group, of our population, however you want to define your population, as I said from your household to your country. There's a spectrum of defining what population, but that we we need to think of ourselves as part of a group. And, and I would say, in fact, that to maximize your self-interest, if you don't think about yourself as part of a group, you are not going to be able to maximize that self-interest. The two should be there's the should aligned uh, in a way to produce a better future. And I worry that, of course, we've swayed toward the individual far more than this public notion, and it hasn't produced a better future, uh, emphasizing uh, individual ethic and health care and the money that goes into health care as opposed to a group ethic and money that might go into public health. And, you know, to persuade you, I would say that sort of the two big issues um, that have happened during these last 50 years of being very me-oriented um, are obesity, which is an epidemic that we've not made any progress on in the United States, gotten only worse, and the fact that our Arctic is melting. So in big ways and in personal ways, the me perspective is dooming us. And we should talk more about that because there are ways to measure that as well. Yeah, there's so much to unpack in what you just said. And so I'll just launch in on one facet of it, which is that you use the really well-known story of the tragedy of the commons. I don't think we need to describe for our listeners what that is. It's pretty well known, but you portray public health and, um, and, and the individual health is kind of like that tragedy of the common where if, you know, everybody has so many cows on the grass and then each person um, trespasses and brings just a little bit extra in being more me, then the whole group suffers and then eventually the individual suffers. So I, I really like the idea that public health is our good. And, you know, we can we can segue from that into so many of those other aspects like um, individual responsibility and financial responsibility, which is a huge one. Um, so wherever you want to take that. Yeah, I think that I think that thinking about public health as a as a common good is tricky and hard for us as an Americans who don't necessarily again think of the common good. And this is of course playing out in all aspects of American life, not just health. Um, and I want to come back at some point to really define what the difference is between health and health care is, because I think that will be important. But the notion of public health, as we've been discussing it so far, is that um, there are these big problems or big potential problems that we often don't see until they become big problems in our air and in our water and in what we eat. You only have to live in Flint, Michigan, and I have a lead crisis, or in Jackson, Mississippi, 
where your water gets contaminated and your business is shut and people can't flush their toilets at home and there's no drinking water to understand that the conditions of our life, things that we sort of come to expect until it's not there are in fact important to our health. So part of public health is of course invisible. That is, we only notice some of these problems until when there's a problem, but that the benefits of public health are, don't come immediately or specifically, yet the payment for them, which is, of course, our tax dollars typically take care of these things, does come to us specifically. So we really need to sort of change our mindset for the greater good. And I always argue with people about this because it's a really an individual mindset that we live with. And what I often argue is that, you know, if not for yourself, then for your kids and for your grandkids, right? That this is a really a legacy project. And the way I think of the legacy is that we want our generation and the next generation to live longer, right? Life expectancy is sort of a great metric of public health for a nation. And what we know is that life expectancy for the first time in a century has dropped three years in a row in the United States. That is, it was dropping even before the pandemic. And that life expectancy suggests that um, our problems with life expectancy, our dropping life expectancy is a signal that there's some problem here in the United States that we've got to admit to. And that's what this conversation is about, which is if you don't admit that there's a problem, we're not going to look for solutions. And I'll leave this little paragraph in this way. In the 1990s, American life expectancy was almost exactly the same as Europe, Germany, France, England. We had the same life expectancy. And in the last 30 years, we have fallen completely behind all of those countries were 40th in the world in life expectancy. We like to think of Americans as exceptional and number one. We are actually 40th in life expectancy. That's changed in 30 years. So what's happened such that American babies are more likely to die before they turn five and American teenagers are more likely to die before they turn 20 and American adults are more likely to die before they turn 65 than anywhere in Europe. Like what's happened? Like if we can't have a conversation about that, then I think we're lost. Right. I so agree. I've been throwing these statistics around to people for years because it is so shocking. And this lets us jump back into the health versus health care issue, because all that is despite the fact that we in the U.S. spend way more than the European countries on individual health care and way less on public health care. So there's kind of a message there that maybe that public health care is really important in allowing us to achieve this metric, which is not the greatest metric, of course, of life expectancy as a sign of the, our healthcare system's health. There's very clear evidence that we've we've let healthcare come to dominate us, and and the way the way that we that I think about that is just in terms of dollars spent, right? The Americans spend money on what they value, and what they value, therefore, is clearly healthcare here, and that's evident by the fact that we spend eleven thousand dollars per American per year on healthcare. And by healthcare, I mean going to hospitals, emergency room, doctor's offices, getting CAT scans and blood tests and paying for your medications, $11,000 a year per person and $285 
on public health. That's one fortieth the amount that we spend on healthcare. So that very simple number, which is very different from most other parts of the world, tells us that healthcare has sort of won the day over public health at this moment. And um, and and again, this conversation is about that it hasn't gotten us anywhere good on the life expectancy chart and what how do we want to think about that yeah and in fact it seems like as our spending on individual that is the me component of healthcare has gone up and up there's been this inverse correlation with public health care spending it's gone down and down and in a number of studies in your book you illustrate that you just get more bang for your buck when it's spent on public health things like clean water clean air even things we take for granted now like seat belts and speed limits save a lot of lives and therefore contribute a lot to that life expectancy metric. Yeah, I, I love that you said the term save lives because public health gets itself in trouble by talking merely about prevention, which is central to public health, of course, prevention and populations through policies, those three Ps, prevention, population, policies, or sort of the aspirational parts of public health. And, um, but you use the word save lives, not prevent death, save lives. And I love that because it's the terminology, it's grabbing the terminology back from doctors, right? Who are thought to save lives. Well, in fact, you know, you are saving lives if you have a longer life expectancy, if you have uh, better prospects into the future. The second part of what you said, which I thought was, super interesting was that um, while there's not a lot of private investment in public health, again, un-American, where private money goes, we like to think is where our interest lies in the United States. Public health is primarily government money. But even as as government money goes, the investment in public health has very high return on investment. I mean, if the private world could get in on this, it would be really terrific because the return on investment is fantastic and um, far higher return on investment than healthcare offering a new MRI or a slightly improved medication or uh, a different form of cancer treatment which have very small return on investments because they're often expensive and have minimal effects across large swaths of the population. But to go back to some other things that I liked about the book, one thing was that you talked about a lot of studies um, that looked at the effects of public health. And it's really difficult to compare the studies that can be done on public health with the classical randomized control trials in individualized medicine, because you can't really take different populations and subject them to two different treatments um, like you can in a drug trial, for instance. But you can do these observational studies. And so there was one really intriguing one that you talked about that illustrate the um, really incredible long-term effects of a small amount of public health care spending. And that was the Medicaid study where people looked long-term at the effects of um, pregnancy care and early postpartum care in babies, looked at their lifetime 
um, success, both in terms of health and in terms of financial stability. Could you summarize that study? I think that's really a powerful one. There are a number of, of, of these studies that, that, that sort of take a natural experiment where, where one group um, has something in the world happen to them and, and other groups uh, don't have things happen to them. And um, and you see the difference between the the two groups, and and I think less important really than the details of a particular study, because there are many such national natural experiments that happen. Um, is this idea I think of you know what are the policies that drive the conditions of the world that make us it easier for us to be healthier. And uh, those policies are often coming through cities or states or even federal governments. And we know what they are. We know that temporary housing vouchers help people uh, get uh, healthier. We know that alcohol sales controls policies let people get healthier. Uh, we know that safe, accessible transportation uh, that includes, you know, walking, biking, and bus riding and train riding helps people get healthier. And so policies is the only way that you can affect populations of people. And again, the me version, the medical version is let's take care of you. The policy version is let's take care of all of us. And I think that that's just an important way of sort of moving forward. And the two work in reciprocation, I believe, and I'll give you a, a different example of that. So I, I mentioned this in the beginning, you know, one of the ways that we failed in terms of our public policy that affects our life expectancy on a population level and our personal lives on a very individual level is around weight gain. So obesity is really, you know, a big problem in the United States. 40 or 50% of adults and about the same number of children are now overweight that's affecting their health. And that's despite the fact that for the past 50 years, we've had diet books and diet programs and medications and surgery, all sorts of medical interventions to work on having people lose weight. And yet it hasn't worked at all. And, and we know this as individuals because we seek these books and diet programs again and again and again, and it's just very hard to lose weight. So why is that? And and the answer isn't that you and I and our friends are just irresponsible and making bad decisions and um, have lousy willpower and all the notions of sort of individual self-care. No, I don't buy that at all. I think it's because we live in a society where we have corporate food systems that dictate the production, processing, distribution, preparation, and consumption of our foods, and that those influences 
have effects through policies on corn and sugar subsidies. So those are very cheap. And the foods that we get in the supermarket that are easiest on our wallets are cheap. And so we consume 25% more calories on average than we did 50 years ago. So of course we can't lose weight. Of course, half the population has weight issues that could affect their health. And so the only way to change the system up now is through policies that create multiple interventions to try to have us reach a healthier average weight as a whole society, instead of saying, well, I'm skinny and I don't need to worry about anybody else. Well, you're paying for this in various ways and and you need to be aware of that. And all of this talk about policies that I've been offering this in this interview really affect us through our politicians, right? We just came through an election and we make our political decisions based on lots of reasons, but I would hope that we think about sort of the health effects of the policies that come through the candidates that we vote for or that are in office and we, we need to influence. That's such a good point for us to end on, that there's this continuum between me, the individual, and the larger society, you know, going up to the role of our nationally elected leaders and what they can do to influence all of our healthcare and community health by policy. Urge listeners of this show to read your book and get some more information on the long-term effects of some of these policies as well as future ones. So thank you very much for talking today, Michael Stein. Thanks so much for having me. That was Michael Stein, primary care physician and researcher, who has been writing about medicine and public health for decades. In his book, Me Versus Us, he instigates a conversation about how we might change the current situation in which public health loses out to individual medicine, and how public health nevertheless holds the solutions to our most concerning health crises, such as COVID-19 and obesity. In the end, Stein argues, we need to recover and sharpen our sense of health based on a reverent appreciation of both the health care and public health perspectives. You can find a link to the book in the show notes on the How on Earth website. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. I produced this week's show, and I'm also wearing the executive producer hat this quarter. Shannon Young expertly engineered, and additional contributions from Benita Lee and Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Claude Debussy. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and links to websites mentioned in the show. You can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.